0: As always, you always hear me mention this, that this series is sponsored by the Richmond Times-Dispatch, and we are delighted to have their support, and the way they publicize these lectures is just of invaluable assistance to us at the VHS, and today we are fortunate to have with us Greg Gilligan, who's the business editor at the Richmond Times-Dispatch, and he has known our speaker for a long time, and he will introduce him. So, Greg?
1: Thank you so much, Paul. Yes, um, it was interesting. I was remarking earlier that uh, the first time I ever met Alan Wurzel, our speaker today, was in 1993. Um, I actually spoke to him on the phone in May or June. I was writing a story about a thing that Car- Circuit City was getting into at the time called CarMax. They didn't even have any called it CarMax at that point. And Alan, who was the board chairman, you know, I picked up the phone, called him, and, and we chatted for probably 20 minutes to a half hour. And he gave me a lot of great insight from his perspective on the board about uh, CarMax. And, and he's always been very willing to speak very, you know, to me very, uh, throughout the years. I covered Circuit City from 1993 until almost its demise. Uh, then a colleague of mine picked it up, and then um, Circuit City, of course, is no longer around. So how does a company, which started right here in Richmond, Virginia, on West Broad Street, a small little shop um, in the late 1940s, how does a company go from being a good company to a great company to a company that's gone? Alan will give us a kind of a perspective of that today. Um, It went from a mom-and-pop operation, as I said, uh, with about $13,000 in investment from his father, Uh, and it was at one point the best-performing stock on the New York Stock Exchange for Fortune 500 uh, service companies for the period of 1983 to 1993. (coughs) It went bankrupt, It filed for bankruptcy in 2008, and then in early 2009 it liquidated all of its assets. For nearly 50 years, Circuit City was able to successfully navigate the constant changes in the consumer electronics marketplace and meet consumer demand and taste and and preferences. But with subsequent decline and ultimate demise of Circuit City in two thousand nine, Alan Wurzel had that rare perspective of being a former company insider, and of the, uh, also, but also having a, uh, a role of looking from the outside, looking in. Um, his newly published book, From Good to Gone to Great, or actually, for, for good to, for good, from Good to Great to Gone. I'm sorry about that, Alan. <laughs> we'll have a resume, Yes, exactly. Um, he was able to uh, to really chronalize the the whole uh, s- story of Circuit City. As I said, his father founded the company. He took over as CEO in 1972, and then he became uh, he re- he retired as CEO um, in 1986. But he remained on as chairman of the board. When he became um, the CEO, his sales went from 63 million dollars a year to 72 million dollars. By the time he retired as the CEO in 86, Circuit City sales were hovering around $1 billion and earnings had reached about 35 million. Um, so let's hear from, from Alan. How could a company go from being a good company to a great company to a company that's gone? Alan?
0: Thank you, Greg, and and thanks, to Paul, and the Virginia Historical Society for inviting me. Uh, it's wonderful to be back in Richmond. Uh, it brings back a lot of memories. I had uh, lunch with some dear old friends that are, that are here today, and I see many in the audience. Uh, some of you uh, former colleagues with from Circuit City. I spent 20 wonderful years of my life living in Richmond and and working at Circuit City, and coming back here is uh, is as a treat, and I'm. Honored to, uh, to have been asked to do this. The thing I want to talk about today are, <clears throat> the thing I want to start with today is, is a quiz and I ask you how many of you have cir- shopped at Circuit City? Uh, uh, pretty substantial. And how many at Best Buy? And how many have bought uh, tel- <clears throat> electronics on the internet? So those of you who raise your hand three times, you're qualified for the final exam, which we're going to have after this, uh, this session. <laughs> I, I want to start by, by talking about what's in a name. Um, some, many of you have heard of Good to Great by Jim Collins, and maybe some of you have not. But Jim Collins is a former professor at the business, uh, Stanford Business School. And as a project, he mined the list of Fortune 500 companies Uh, for 50 years, from the end of World War II, basically, to 2000, and looked for those that had outperformed the S&P by three times. And he found hundreds that had done it for five years. He found scores that had done it for uh, 10 years, but only 11 companies, uh, including Philip Morris, which was headquartered in Richmond at the time, um, had done it for 15 years. And it's and of those eleven companies, those eleven companies is where he focused and and concentrated his research to determine those are the what were the factors that enabled these companies to go from good to great and sustain a a, a strong stock performance for at least fifteen years. Uh, obviously, when circ- uh, and this book has become an iconic uh, business book, it sold over four million copies. And there's an, a version of it that he wrote for not for profit. So it's a, for those interested in organizational behavior and business strategy and not for profit strategy, it's become something of a Bible. So I was happy to be able to piggyback on the, on the name, uh, Good to Great, in, in writing this book. And so what's the book about? I'd say it's about, first, it's on three levels. First of all, it's the history of Circuit City, and many of you in this room have lived during this 60-year period, or at least a significant part of it, when Circuit City started in 1949 until it died in uh, 2009. And during that, but it's not just an insider, you know, what happened this year, this next year, etc. The focus is not so much on the internal operations or uh, history of the company, but more on the strategic issues that the company faced as the world's changed. And the first level on which there was terrific change in that 60 years was at the national level. After World War II, um, soldiers came back, uh, they married in droves, had children in, in abundance, and it was the beginning of the huge baby boom that became a huge population explosion. And that you know, since the end of World War II, the population of the country has roughly doubled. I mean, it's a huge change in in, in American life. An equally important change is, is working women. When I was a teenager at the end of World War II, my mother didn't work outside the home, and very few other women did. But today, of course, probably 80% of American housewives uh, are working outside the home, a huge trend in uh, in the sociology of American life in that period. An equally or more important change is probably the flight to the suburbs. The creation of the interstate highway system under uh, President Eisenhower led to the accessibility of the suburbs by motor car. And within a decade, a third third of the American public was now living in suburban uh, settings outside of major cities. and for, of course, the, electro- the emergence of electronics and in all of its forms from the IBM typewriter to uh, to the home computer has uh, all of those changes have influenced uh, the, this, the world in which Circuit City evolved over those sixty years at the same time on level two, there were transitions in retailing and major changes as a kid the main the, you walk up and down Broad Street. They were mostly either mom and pop stores or uh, Miller and Rhodes and Talheimers, big department stores. Maybe a, maybe a Woolworths, but uh, Kresge's or other uh, five and ton chains. But it was a retail world of mom and pops and department stores. And that changed dramatically in the late 50s with the emergence of uh, mass merchandisers or dis- what were called discount stores. And the discount stores, which began in Rhode Island in 1959, again within a decade, came to dominate American retailing. Uh, Kmart and, and Woolco and, and then Sam's Clubs and Walmarts and, uh, are now the major driving factor in American uh, retailing. A huge change. Another change was the, change, <coughs> the emergence of big box stores starting with Levitt's Furniture, for example, or Toys R Us, or Circuit City. And the big box stores began to gradually absorb more and more of the customers' retail dollars because they appealed to customers that wanted large selections in in categories that uh, could be more fully and better presented than in a department store, certainly in a mom-and-pop store. And the last level on which Circuit City navigated a substantial change was on the product uh, category level. Uh, My dad started, as I said, in 1949 when black and white TVs were 13 inches, 13 inches of black and white, half picture and half snow. (laughs) Uh, And within within a decade, color TV came along, Um, UHF where you could go from 13 channels to 40 or 50 channels, and then DVDs and videos and video cameras and hi-fi of all kinds uh, to computers, to the internet, to the cloud. I mean, just think in 60 years how much change a company like Circuit City had to deal with. As as the company went from bef- before 49, the only home entertainment system was a radio. And today, look at the... Pro- the plethora of options anybody has for information and entertainment from their TV, from their computer, from the internet. I mean, it's an infinite uh, difference from uh, 60 years ago. And so this this is a book about um, strategic planning in the context of very dynamic changes in the country, in in retailing in general and in products in particular. So I've often asked, why did I write the book? And first and foremost, I wanted to understand what happened to Circuit City. I knew it at the beginning. I was a kid in high school. I think the first summer we lived in Richmond, I was climbing on tin roofs and installing antennas on chimneys. The second or third summer, I had a driver's license, so I was driving a service truck or a or a delivery truck or whatever. Uh, so I knew the company from its origins from the bottom up. I went off to law school and co- college and law school and came back in 86 when my dad asked me to uh, or told me he was looking for a lawyer and I was uh, I was interested in learning business law so I thought I would join him and learn some business law. And stayed he uh, got interested in the business and ran the company and um retired in 86 left the board in 2000 so i knew the history of the company pretty well from the beginning until 2000 and when i left in 2000 i had sold all my stock i was no longer on the board and 9 years later the company was dead and i couldn't i was interested to find out what happened because it was it was in pretty good shape uh, when when i uh, left the board it had problems but but uh, i never expected it would it would only survive for 10 years. So curiosity as to what happened was the first thing that led me to uh, write the book. And to do that, I researched in depth, got all the annual reports, all the SEC reports, a lot of industry publications, um, and um, tried to understand from an objective standpoint, not trying to take myself and my ego and the family's interest in the business out of the equation and try to look at it as, clinically as I could as to what what were the successes and the failures and what accounted for those successes and failures over 50 years. And finally, I I wanted to be able to explain to hundreds, thousands of loyal employees and millions of customers who would ask ask themselves whatever happened to Circuit City. So that was the the reason that I embarked on this three-year journey, to try and understand the, uh, the strengths, the weaknesses, the, the successes and the failures of the company over uh, 60 years from a, as an objective a standpoint as I could. And I came to the conclusion that in looking at um, business strategy, that there is, there is no formula for defining a good business strategy or a bad business strategy. I define business strategy as the art and science of harmonizing the resources and strengths, the uh, capacities of the organization to the external environment. Every business, whether it's for-profit or not-for-profit, lives in an external world. It, it needs customers. Even not-for-profits need customers, uh, people that are willing to pay something for the, to go to the uh, to the opera, to go to the museum, to do, uh, or to use the services of the organization, make some sacrifice to uh, avail themselves of the, what the organization has to have offer. Uh, and there's no there's no formula for good business strategy uh, because it's all situational. What works today is very unlikely to work tomorrow, and what works in Richmond may or may not work in New York, and what works in New York m- is unlikely to work in. Paris or Shanghai or someplace else. So business, you can't write rules about business strategy. But what I concluded was that there are habits of mind that lead to good business strategy or to bad business strategy. Habits of mind is the way people approach a business or or organizational uh, uh, challenge. And so out of the, the 60 year history of Circuit City, I've distilled uh, tw- what I call 12 habits of mind that lead to success or lead to failure in uh, in organizational strategy. And I'll give you a, a few of them, and then what the book does is, is as it tells the story of Circuit City from beginning to end in a chronological fashion, at the end of each chapter, it, it tries to relate the incidents, the history of that particular period, to the habits of mind that led to good or bad decision making, good or bad results uh, during that period. So, the first and I think probably the most important habit of mind uh, in developing a, a strategic plan is what I call confront the brutal facts. The worst person you can fool is yourself. Ignoring or denying reality does not make it go away once you, but once you understand the issues you need to be bold and take action to uh, to implement uh, the strategy that you come up with. So in, in trying to figure out how you can align the resources of the business over which you have some, have some influence with the external environment like the economy and demographics and changes Various kinds that I just described, um, you need you need to uh, not fool yourself, and you got to be totally honest of to, as to what uh, what your weakness, particularly as to your your weaknesses. The second uh, habit of mind I think is important is to be humble and run scared. Lots of businesses, lots of organizations of all kinds, get themselves in deep trouble because of lack of humility or sometimes called hubris. You need to doubt your understandings of things. Business success contains the seeds of its own destruction, and you have to worry about things like what the competition knows that you don't. When you get fat, dumb, and happy, and you think you know the answers, that's the time to watch out. That's a bad habit of mind for running any kind of an organization. I think that happened, for example, to the uh, American automotive industry, in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, they were on top of the world. They thought nobody could touch General Motors, Ford, Chrysler, they, they knew all the answers. And though those, the Japanese, who we, we, just, we beat those guys in World War II, how could they possibly build a car that would appeal to the American consumer <laughs> better than what we are building in Detroit? Well, that hubris obviously cost Detroit and cost the American car industry uh, enormously. And I think that same kind of hubris can be, is replicated. And other examples can be found throughout industry and throughout organizational behavior. So be humble, run scared, I think, is an important habit of mind. Another one I call curiosity sustains the cat. It doesn't kill the cat, it keeps the cat alive. And if you're trying to navigate the, uh, the fortunes of your organization in a constantly changing external environment, you need to be curious. You need to be looking around, seeing what's happening, what are the new trends, why people are w- winning, why others are failing, what customers are responding to. That curiosity is a, it's an essential ingredient. And when you stop being curious, and again, you get complacent, the world keeps changing, the organization doesn't change, and you, you get into trouble. Uh, another one I think is important is mind the culture. Creating a caring culture in which the people working with you and for you uh, have the same goals, the same aspirations, the same objectives, that you can communicate where you want the organization to go and, and by consensus and by participation create willing and, and loyal and uh, enthusiastic adherence to that goal is critical. And those CEOs that are unable to sustain, create and sustain internal Uh, support uh, a a robust and and, uh, happy culture uh, running organizations that are not likely uh, to succeed. One last, uh, another one is to encourage debate. I mean, the way to get a caring culture within the organization is to be open and let people who have expressed their ideas and think through how they, uh, with you, as to what the organization should be. When I, when I ran Circuit City, the executive committee, which would be the fi- top five, six, seven, you know, department heads reporting to me, we would meet once a month and generally for a full day and if we didn't finish into the evening with an agenda of items to discuss. And we would keep talking about these until we reached consensus. And there are some people here that, today that, remember, these meetings might go on at a prolonged break, because I didn't want to cut it off until I found people were repeating themselves. But if we couldn't reach consensus, we'd set it down and talk about next month, and maybe if it was a big topic the month after. And when people kept, people would come back the next month with new information, new ideas. We'd talk about it, but when we were repeating themselves, we were each, each side was repeating itself, and no new information was being added. It was my prerogative and responsibility as the CEO to make a decision. And when I did it, Even the people whose views did not uh, prevail accepted it, I think, uh, very equitably because they had a full and fair chance to present their views and not to be cut off and to have it fully considered. And and the reality is, and invariably, the decision that we came up with uh, was some, some mix between what one group thought was the right thing to do and what another group thought was another executive thought was the right thing to do. And so we reached, consent, if not total consensus, at least we we took the edges off uh, the view that prevailed by accommodating the, the legitimate concerns of the view of the group that didn't prevail. Finally, and then I'll move on to uh, maybe less abstract topics, um, a, a, an important habit of mind is focusing on the future, not on short-term success, not with the, not on the price of the stock today, not not on today's sales or next week's sales or even next Christmas sales, but on a longer term view of what's in the best interest of the shareholders over multiple years. And those are habits of minds I think, that uh, lead to success. And uh, obviously, the the other side of the coin can lead you in the other direction. So with that background in mind, let me talk a little bit about the history of Circuit City uh, so two uh, uh, important points, uh, important points in any life: birth and death. And uh, I like to say that Circuit City was born in a barber shop. It was born in a barber shop at the corner of Park Avenue and Robinson. I don't think there's a barber shop there anymore. But in 1949, my parents took a, a week off, uh, drove to uh, we're driving to North Carolina to play golf, and my dad had just given up his business in New York and was thinking, what should he do next? And they stopped in Richmond where my mother's sister lived on the uh, 2600 block of Park Avenue. And he had his hair cut, and the barber told him the South's, fir- the South's first television station had just opened in Richmond. At that point, if you lived in Richmond, you'd never seen television unless you'd seen it in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles or a few other uh, major cities well, we had lived we were living in new york uh, my we had seen my father particularly had seen tv he thought it was quite a, quite an amazing uh, development uh and a light bulb went off and he said you know maybe i should try to sell at uh, the next phase of my career open a tv business in richmond and being curious and curiosity sustains the cat he started asking questions about the station, about TV, about the future of TV, what people, you know, went back to New York and did some research, met somebody that was manufacturing TVs, and two months later he was back in Richmond. We sold the house, the $13,000 that somebody mentioned was the, the capital with which he started the company, and he bought uh, half a dozen t- or a dozen, I guess, TVs uh, on a tire shop that's now long gone on the 8th, eight- on the 800 block of, 700 block, I guess, of West Broad, of West Broad Street. They were recapping tires in the, br- the back, you had to hold your nose to it when, when you went in there. Uh, he set these TV, he turned the boxes upside down, put the TVs on top, that was the store. But the basic method of selling was, door- was uh, classified ads. And he took uh, classified ads in, in, the, in the Times-Dispatch, and, and the news leader and invited people to call in for a free home demonstration. And so people would call and he would make appointments to go to their house at six, seven, eight, and nine o'clock because the station was only on the air from six to 10. <laughs> the rest of the day was, was test pattern. And, and the next day he would go back at six, seven, eight, and nine and he'd either pick up the TV or, or get paid. Or uh, get a contract, a you know, an uh, installment contract, and so that's how the business uh, began. Um, within a couple of months, a friend, a close friend, joined him from New York. A guy, some of you know, named Abe Hecht, who became his partner. He put another thirteen thousand dollars, and they were they were off and running. They had a few store. They had a, they moved from uh, eight uh, from the seven hundred block, seven o five West Broad, to eighteen o six which is just south of where the uh, the Sears stores. I don't know if Sears is still there today or not, but anyway, the Sears store on West Broad Street, uh, and that was the main location. They added appliances, and the Ward's TV was headquartered there uh, for uh, you know the, most of the next decade. They opened a few other stores in Richmond. They tried one in Roanoke. They tried one in Norfolk. Neither of them succeeded, which I'll come back to. Um, but that—that's the, uh, the, the the early history. But the next thing that happened, and that was critical, that points. I guess uh, Ward's had five, four stores doing two and a half million dollars in sales, making less than fifty thousand dollars in profits after, uh, you know, b- before taxes. Uh, but they curiosity again. Uh, brought brought my father and his partner into contact with the most important retailing trend, I guess, of, of the century probably, and that's the discount department store. And all of a sudden, discount department stores, because of the interstate comm- uh, highway and, and the desire of the American consumer to get more products at a lower price, became the rage, and discount stores took over retailing. And they latched onto this revolution by operating TV and appliance departments in other people's discount stores as licensees. That was the typical way these these uh, discount stores began. Somebody, maybe the, the person who built the store might be a specialist in, uh, in men's clothing and would run the men's clothing department, but somebody else might run the women's clothing. Somebody else the drug department, somebody else the... Uh, the tire batteries and accessories, or hardware, houseware, each department might have a different merchandising uh, company running that department, uh, but all under one name, under the the banner of one store, and with common advertising. And Circuit City became, or Wards Company, as it was then called, became the the major licensee uh, for uh, this kind of store in the country, and stores around the country. And uh, within I know, eight or ten years, uh, the sales went from two and a half million to fifty million, and the profits increased. Now that was the, the real that, that's the birth story of Circuit City. And the habits of mind that are that are relevant to that were, uh, first of all, curiosity, as I've as I said, and secondly, I would say, mind the culture. And one of the hallmarks of, of Circuit City in the early days was the culture that my dad and Hecht created. And they, they called it the one-face policy. One-face was the face of honesty and fair dealing with suppliers, with customers, and with employees. And that was the, the bedrock, I think, which enabled the company to grow and, and become a great company. For employees, they created a caring and ethical culture, where employees can go, can get ahead, get promoted, take more responsibility, and make mistakes without fear that they have adverse consequences. Um, they really believed that uh, you, you want to encourage people to make decisions, to delegate responsibility to feel involved with their job, to, feel, to take ownership and pride in what they were doing. And to do that, you have to give them responsibility. And if they made mistakes, and people always make mistakes, not to, not to fire them, not to punish them, not to humiliate them, but to try to help them learn from those mistakes. And so that was sort of the, the bedrock of the, the culture that it, I think enabled it to uh, continue to grow, to attract uh, smart and and ambitious and capable people. Now obviously if you made the same mistake over and over again, you didn't have a future at, at Circuit City. It was not a uh, you know, it was not a welfare state. But it was a a company that, that was forgiving and understanding as long as people were trying and, and they were honest with each other, with with fellow employees, with customers, that they did the right thing. The cost, the company encouraged that, even if if there were mistakes made along the way. For suppliers, they also had a one phase policy, and that is they bargained hard, but they kept their commitments. It's they had a challenge. Here's a pip squeak of a company negotiating with General Electric, with Walboir, with uh, you know, all the the major electronics manufacturers in those days, Zenith and Philco and this is even before Sony and, and Panasonic. Um, and they got a reputation in the industry of being honest, hardworking, fair-dealing. They'd keep their commitments. They wouldn't Welsh. Uh, and they understood that empl- that uh, suppliers needed to make a profit, too. And so they endeavored to sell the products that the suppliers wanted to sell along with the, pro- the lower-end products with lower margins that the suppliers were willing to sell but not you know wanted a mix of high margin and low product low margin products so they had a the face of uh, you know one face fair dealing with uh, suppliers as well as customers and finally I mean employees and finally with customers uh, Sam believed that a customer complaint was an opportunity uh, to make a friend and they tried hard to make friends uh as they built the business. My favorite example was, he would say in, in, in training salespeople that um, if you go to a department store and you buy a shirt and it shrinks or it uh, doesn't perform as you expected and you take it back and they give you another shirt, they have not made a friend. They've given you justice. That's what you expected, but they haven't made a friend. But if they give you a shirt and a tie and thank you for your trouble, uh, and recognize that it was an aggravation, then they've made a friend. And so Circuit City did a lot of that, and we had a lot of reason to do it. I mean, we made our normal numbers mistakes, but we were also selling products that were very temperamental, and these products wouldn't, you know, uh, you'd fix them and they'd break soon again, Not, not because we didn't fix them right, but because that was the nature of the technology at the time and vacuum tubes and, you know, sort of ancient history, but still these, products were not as reliable as solid-state electronics are today. And so we often, but the customer didn't know whether it was our mistake or, or inherent in the manufactured product, and we would try to make a friend by fixing the set again and giving them steak knives or a dinner to a local uh, restaurant or that sort of thing. So the habits of mind uh, at the early stage were the, uh, the ones I just ment- mentioned of... Uh, treating people fairly, of, of uh, cu- uh, curiosity, but also keep it simple and accountable. And I think that's an important habit of mind for running a business. And they made major investments in the early days. When they went to Roanoke and went to Norfolk, it was not successful because it wasn't that simple. And communications were difficult. Telephone, call- I mean, telephone calls were expensive in those days. I mean, today we think nothing of it, but Um, you know, 50 cents or something to call Norfolk, you know, uh, 50 years ago, that added up uh, with multiple calls during the day. And we didn't have, I mean, data processing and the internet, of course, didn't exist. But they developed, invested early in IT, in uh, in technology, had one of the first uh, IBM punch card machines, you know, run, used by a small local retailer to keep track of the inventory and and to create detailed profit and loss statements that they could produce for each sale for each store for each store manager so you could hold that store manager accountable for the success of that store for the sales for the margins for the expenses and that investment in keeping it simple and accountable was a major factor in the ability of the company, when it went into the um, mass marketing or the discount stores, to run thorny 30, 50 stores around the country because it had developed through early investment and early experimentation, systems to keep it simple and accountable. And finally, uh, the habit of mind one habit of mind that's most applicable in the early period, is boldly follow-through. Uh, and uh, once you decide what to do, then you make, make need to make a commitment, and make it happen. And once uh, my father checked out uh, TV as a possibility and, and Richmond as a as an opportunity, I mean, within two weeks he we, we, he came back with everything he owned. I mean, the proceeds from the sale of the house and bet it on this business. And uh, that was a bold and, and moved the family, obviously, and that was a bold a bold move. so all of those habits of mind I think are exhibited at the uh, at the birth. so let's talk a minute about the death and um, let me excuse me got get my here we are um, let's talk about Best Buy, um, and I need to speed this up but Best Buy in 1985 uh, was just a blip on the horizon. Uh, it was an audio, uh, a small chain of audio stores in Minneapolis, Minnesota, at five or six audio stores, and all they sold was Hi-Fi. They had sales of uh, three or four million dollars when they went public uh, in uh, 1985. But unlike Circuit City, which had created this format of the big box store that, that uh, that it was then running, the, the, the Loading Dock or uh, Circuit City Superstore that you know, uh, Best Buy sort of reinvented itself a few times. It never made a profit in the, in the early 90s. It barely broke even. It kept raising money from Wall Street. Not clear how they were able to do it because it was not all that profitable, but they were, looking, they were pointing Wall Street, I think, to Circuit City. said, look, they're making a lot of money. You give me money, and we'll do the same thing. Um, and we took our eye off the ball. I, I had left the company in 86, so I'm talking about a period five, between 5 and 10 years after I retired. Uh, we took our eye off the ball. We spent a lot of time and attention on developing CarMax. We spent time and money and attention in developing DivX, but I think most fundamentally we didn't believe that the self-service model that was so productive at Best Buy and at Mass Merchants would work. We, uh, my successors believed that every c- customer had to be met with, by, met with, had to meet it with a salesman and have an opportunity for the salesman to sell him a better featured product, uh, a better featured product that carried a higher margin and also the opportunity to sell them an extended service policy. Not, not that we forced either one. We were very careful to make it options, but we sort of insisted that every customer at least consider uh, these options. And uh, he believed that if we didn't do that, we would only sell the lowest margin, the entry-level of product, and we'd never make any money. And so, meanwhile, Best Buy would pile it up and People would pick it up and take it to the counter, and that's the way they wanted to buy. And and Ten years earlier, they probably wouldn't because they were not so familiar with electronics products. But after their second or third TV, their second or third DVD, their second camera, they didn't need all of the hand-holding that customers initially needed when buying these, these new products. The other mistake I think we made was we downplayed and failed to carry other low-margin products like um, TV, like games, video games, which and we didn't carry them because they were very low-margin. Well, it turns out those were the kids; those were the products the kids wanted. And we were systematically saying to teenagers, uh, "Don't shop at Circuit City because we don't carry TV games or or DVDs or other you know music that you're interested in. Go to Best Buy because they have that stuff." And those those decisions, I think led to the fact that within a five year period, Circuit City and Best Buy were doing each doing 10, or, each doing $10 million dollars per store uh, in the early 90s. By the mid 90s, Circuit City had gone from 10 to 12 and Best Buy had gone from 10 to 30 million and then it went to 40 million dollars per store. Huge leverage on the rent and the fixed expenses of those stores. That made an enormous difference. And then they stopped disparaging ESPs, extended service policies, which they'd been doing for a while. They started to sell them. They got their own supply chain in, in, in gear because they were having lots of problems with their inventory and matching needs and, and, and available uh, supplies. And pretty soon they were making a lot of money and we were struggling because we had one quarter of the sales Per store that they have, so they could afford better real estate, uh, they could afford more advertising, and that virtuous cycle fed on each other. And by 2000, they were dramatically ahead. In fact, Circuit City was in third place in uh, total electronic sales after Best Buy and and Walmart. So that's how we took our eye off the ball and began to, uh, you know, to, to lose the. the uh, to end being great and to start looking at a, a less optimistic future. Uh, the next CEO was a was a lovely man and a and a good merchant and had a lot of a lot of strengths. And he recognized that um, that the company was in trouble. And he put together a plan and he put together um, talks and he he told the board uh, we need to do a lot of things. We got to change our sales system. We got to change our supply system. We've got to change our stores. Most of all, we have to remodel the stores to make the stores much, the floors much bigger, so there's room to put the boxes out there for people to pick them up and take them to the cashier. The problem was he could never uh, arrange to execute these plans. And he dithered back and forth. He'd try something, he'd stop. He got worried that it would, it would have cost over a billion dollars to remodel the 500 stores, and a third of them probably had to be replaced for another $200 uh, million and uh, another $2 billion. I believe Circuit City could have afforded it, um, but they didn't have the, the boldness or the conviction to pursue that because they kept looking over their shoulder at the stock market and what Wall Street thought and what was happening to the stock price and maybe what was happening to the stock options. So for whatever the reasons, none of those Plans that recognized Circuit City's strategic dilemma uh, were were implemented, or effectively implemented. And he, when he retired in '95, uh, I guess '96, um, his successor was a, a talented merchant from Best Buy. Somebody that he had the, 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 the next successive CEO had hired to. Um, to be the, inter- the in-house merchant. Uh, and, um, and, and when McCulloch retired, the board elected this guy from Best Buy named Phil Schoonover uh, to be the CEO. And that was, the, as far as I'm concerned, was the nail in the coffin. Uh, the Circuit City culture, which I just described to you as a caring culture, uh, was torn apart. Uh, the new team... And it was a awful lot of change. It wasn't just at the top, but most of the vice presidents and executive vice presidents and all the merchandising team uh, had had left the company in the, the preceding five, six, seven years. So there was hardly anybody there at the senior levels that had been there earlier. Um, they didn't understand that the, the, the Circuit City had a different culture. Uh, at the, the the epitome was when they fired thirty four hundred salespeople like that. And identified them as the highest paid and and therefore clearly the most productive because they were commissioned salespeople. And crowed to Wall Street, hey, look what we've done. We've saved all this money. Without ever one bit of concern about destroying the lives of 3,400 people, many of whom were five, 10, 20 year Circuit City veterans. That kind of approach to, to uh, employees doomed whatever, whatever possibility the company had to be revived and by then it was difficult. Uh, I think evaporated with the culture, with the, uh, the lack of a caring culture. So the habits of mine from the from the death uh, cycle I would say are several. One is confront the brutal facts. Uh, my successor, didn't really appreciate it. I think he he was a very, very smart guy. Many of you know him, very smart guy. And he understood intellectually, but he didn't appreciate that this change in sales per store uh, from 10 million to 40 million, and we were going from 10 million to 12, was a fatal and uh, almost insurmountable uh, difficulty and that the most important thing was not the gross margin on the sale of the item, but the net margin on the volume of the company. It's much better to make 2% with a fast turnover of product than 50% if you only turn the product once every two years. I mean, I don't want to get into the math and the logistics of that, but... A fa- grocery stores turn their products quickly at low margins. Hardware stores turn them slowly at high margins. One is not necessarily better than the other because they both bring money to the bottom line as a return on investment. And we didn't understand that. Um, and we didn't, the other thing we didn't do was we weren't humble and we didn't run scared. We weren't worried about Best Buy when we should have been worried. So those, uh, and then finally, uh, evidence. I think, triumphs, uh, Trump's ideology. That's another, I think, critical habit of mine. Look at the evidence and try to shed yourself of ideology. We believed if we gave up the commission system that that people, you couldn't sell any higher margin products. Well, it turns out Best Buy all along was, the evidence was Best Buy was doing it. And as soon as we dropped it, we did it too. But we were caught in an ideological mindset, that we didn't believe it could happen, and we weren't even t- willing to experiment to see whether we were right or right, because we weren't humble. We, weren't, we didn't doubt ourselves, and those are the things, the habits of mind that led to uh, Circuit City's demise. The last and the final thing that led to its demise was, the bo- was problems with the board. Uh, the company didn't focus on the future. It, the board made decisions to please the market. It stopped the, the completion of a, a point of sale system that was badly needed to facilitate the flow of goods at, at Christmas and at busy times of the year because uh, it didn 't want to spend another few hundred million dollars and it said went to IBM spent a billion but uh, it was a short sighted you know wall street driven uh, decision because that billion dollars was was in rent and not shown in the p and l the same it wasn 't a capital expenditure uh, the other uh, Thing and most important, in the last four years, the Circuit City Board bought back $966 million worth of company stock, a billion dollars worth of stock. And they did it in an effort to maintain and support the price of the stock, which, as the company was declining in in profits, the stock was declining uh, appropriately. And they tried to put a finger in that dike to stop that trend and used up almost all of their cash reserves so that in September of 2008, when Lehman filed for bankruptcy and all hell broke loose in the financial markets around the world, Circuit City's cupboards were, were bare. They had spent all this money on foolish technology, on an expansion program in, in Canada that, that cost them 300 million on uh, and on stock buybacks and so there was nothing in the cupboard and suppliers now had a different standard and if you're going to buy goods for christmas we're not going to extend the same terms to you that we did 2 years ago 5 years ago because you're no longer as strong a company financially as you used to be and our standards are now higher given what's happening in the financial markets and so circuit city couldn't get goods couldn't couldn't get any credit to buy goods uh, for Christmas, to, you know, to be paid for after Christmas, and they had no products on the shelf for Christmas of 08. They filed for Chapter se- uh, Chapter 11 in December, and when they couldn't get purchased or refinanced, uh, liquidated in January of 2009. So that's the story of good to great to gone. Thank you. <clears throat> Well, Wurtzel, the, I'd be happy to, with the tol- tolerance of your patience. <laughs> Mr. Wurtzel,
1: the, uh, you talked about the cultural changes and the big impacts that led to the growth
0: of Circuit City. How do you see or how would you advise retailers now with the uh, growth of online purchasing? Online is a very, very big challenge for what I call commodity retailers. If you're selling TVs, you're selling hammers, you're selling uh, tires, uh, you're selling things that are pretty much identical, one to the other, Uh, it's hard to find a way to compete, I think, against an internet retailer which doesn't have to have a storefront, which doesn't have to have a retail presence and retail help, and cashiers, it's a much lower cost operation. You just bring it into a warehouse, put it on the internet, pick it, and ship it. Where a retailer has to bring it into a warehouse, bring it to the store, have a store personnel, and and you understand the point. On the other hand, goods that are more unique, like sweaters or neckties, or have individuality, and customers wanna see them and touch them and feel them, before they buy them, uh, I think that the, the internet is a much less of a threat. So uh, the answer is I think the world is changing. And just as the mom and pop um, grocery store that still existed when I was a kid, and you'd go in and as a pickle barrel, and you'd order two pickles, and you, a pound of flour, and they go to the flour barrel, and with a scoop, put a pound of flour in a bag. Uh, those were supplanted by by the a and p and by the grocery stores. I think a lot of hard goods retailers that are selling commodity products unless there's, unless service is a significant component I mean fitting somebody to a bicycle is an important service that you couldn 't get. But if you just want to buy the bike, you can do that on the internet and it 's hard to compete with Amazon or its peers in if you were a, a bicycle retailer. <laughs> thank you for a wonderful business story right here. Yes. Right here, right over here. I wondered, uh, in your birth period, uh, what percent of the sales were made on an installment system? What percent of the sales were made on what? An installment. Ah, in the early days, in the early days, I don't know exactly, 60%, I would guess. there were no credit cards in 1949. I mean, a few of us are old enough to remember that. And, and so if you weren't going to pay for it in cash or with a check, uh, you had to buy an installment. And actually, we, the, the company had a whole department of, I don't know, eight or ten clericals. My mother was the, was the head clerk. Uh, and, and she supervised the gathering of these installment papers, bundling them up and selling them to the bank. And uh, that was an art, too, because you had to make... Tr- the bad ones, you try to slip in with three or four good ones. <laughs> <laughs> and tell the bank they had to buy the package. <laughs> yes? Miss, Mr. Wurtzel, uh, you notably left out the CarMax... Yes. Uh, ...episode.
1: Could you comment on CarMax, please?
0: Yes. I mean, I... I thought at the time I was on the board, and I think now, Carmax is a fabulous business and a fabulous idea, and it's proven you know to be a very strong business, which I think has even today, at what seven billion dollars, still has huge potential. It's unique in the, in, in the country, in the, in, the, in the way that it sells used cars. Um, as far, and, and the reason we got into Carmax. Was that Circuit City at that time had maybe 400 stores around the country, and we thought by doing you know economic projections, demographic projections, the company, the country, could handle maybe 600 stores, 700 stores. So we saw the end of the line of adding retail Circuit City stores without them beginning to cannibalize as, as it's called in the trade, where you they're too closely uh, uh, located that this, the sales of a new store take something away from the sales of older stores. So we were looking for something else to do. Um, that was just at the time I left the company. But my successor, I think, did a brilliant job in identifying a different business. He, he actively, he hired somebody, a very smart guy, a Yale uh, MBA, and together they looked at what are the most difficult businesses that we could get into that are of, of of size that are that are significant enough that once they developed they could be a a, a counterweight or an equal partner uh, to the Circuit City business, and they came up with the used car business because it was probably the most screwed up retail business in the country. <laughs> uh, and and you all know the you know the, he's a, he's like a used car salesman. That was the most derogatory thing you could say about somebody. And they thought, they thought if they could straighten that out and make it consumer friendly, it was a big business, it was a screwed up business, and it was a huge opportunity. And I thought that was brilliant. And they, they worked hard to figure out how to do that. The, the important uh, link here was that most of the skills that you needed to run a circuit city as compared, let's say, to a Walmart or a Kmart or a, or, you know, or even even a Thalheimer's, most of the, those skills that, that you needed to run a circuit city and were unique to a circuit city were also important in the car business. You, you, need, you need a good salesmanship, which obviously Kmart, Walmart or department stores, by and large don't need. You needed to repair the product after it was sold. Uh, in in at Circuit City, you needed to do the same thing at CarMax. You needed to become experts on consumer finance because most customers couldn't, you know, write a check for a new car out of their bank account. So you had to help help them finance it, just as we did it. So we had all of these skills, and applying the same skill sets to a new product category was not nearly as difficult as learning the new, as, as learning the, obviously we had to learn a lot about cars, but the skill set was transferable. So I thought it was a brilliant fit, and it turned out to be a, a great decision.
1: One more question. One more question. Uh, uh, question. Yes, um, I'm a big fan of uh, the Ward's loading dock and stuff, and the W-A-R-D-S, isn't that the letters of somebody's name? Like, yes. Is it Wurzel, Alan, Alan
0: Ruth, David, and Sam.
1: Okay, but my question to you is Gary's Audio. Gary's used to be really big in Richmond. I didn't know if you had a working relationship with Gary's or if Gary's was a competitor of yours.
0: You know, I, I remember the name Gary's, but I don't frankly remember very much more than that. I mean, they were an audio store, but, but we didn't, we sold audio, but we were not, you know, focused audio retailers.
1: Yeah.